From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Alexis Bloom's new documentary, Divide and Conquer, the story of Roger Ailes, arrives in theater just shortly after the 2018 midterms. There's a lot of context uh, for Mr. Ailes' stratospheric rise in politics and media. He's the founder of Fox News, but he was also made his bones with Richard Nixon. He was a fixture of politics and media for the better part of four decades. Alexis Bloom, welcome to Political Theater. I'm really looking forward to talking about your new movie. Thanks so much for having me here. I assume that your, your interest in, in it certainly predated the ouster of Ailes at, at Fox News in 2016. You'd previously done a documentary about Julian Assange and, and WikiLeaks, uh, We Steal Secrets, which I uh, believe that we discussed at Roll Call. Not in, this po- not in this podcast. It didn't exist at that time, but I think I wrote about it. I'm interested in how you uh, sort of zeroed in on this because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, mm-hmm. Ailes uh, would, would certainly have, have warranted a documentary uh, treatment without the last chapter of his life when he, you know, sort of got embroiled in the Me Too movement uh, and, and Trump. Let's talk about how you got interested in this project and how it sort of evolved. Well, I got involved in this project because it became increasingly apparent that we lived in Roger Ailes's world, you know, a, a world of his creation, whether it's sort of contemporary culture, entertainment, politics, and, you know, particularly the heady combination of the two, entertainment and politics. Um, We actually started out looking at Rupert Murdoch, and Roger was this incredibly colourful sort of landmine in, in Rupert Murdoch's empire. But he was, you know, both kind of loved and loathed by Murdoch's own people, and, he brought um, in a ton of money for them, yeah, but he also, yeah. you know, ran the place like with an iron fist too. That's that's it, and there was no love lost between Lachlan and James Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch's sons, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. and Roger Ailes. So um, it was always an interesting story to tell from this kind of granular personality type angle, you know, um, almost like a Citizen Kane type story. Mm-hmm. But then it was also really important in terms of understanding contemporary American culture. One of the more sort of whiplash moments I suffered when I was watching the film is that it feels, as you say, that we are operating in Fox News' world, in, in this world that Roger Ailes created. But it's important to note that it's only been around since 1996, and it feels like so much longer that Fox News has been around. But Ailes himself, you know, his, his involvement in politics dates back to uh, the Richard Nixon's campaign in 1968. So I filed information requests with the Nixon archives. And one of the things that I discovered was this astonishing document called A Plan to Put the GOP on TV. Its author is unclear. However, the copy that I obtained had Roger Ailes's handwriting all over it. But he did go back and forth between these entertainment and political worlds. And that, that in itself is just so fascinating to me from a, a journalistic standpoint. Yeah, I think that the sort of monetization of fear is not new, is not kind of an, uh, an Aelsian, um invention. It's been around, you know, for as long as people have had emotions. It was very obvious in Roger's work early on, on the political sort of campaigning side, where he soon realized that the American public, you know, voted according to their emotion. If they feared something, 
they were likely to mobilize, they were likely to vote that way. You know, he was very strong on crime, famously with the Willie Horton adverts when George H.W. Bush ran against Michael Dukakis. You know, Roger sort of implied that if you voted for Dukakis, black men were going to come out and rape your women and stab your children and, you know, that'll be the end of us. And people voted accordingly and he saw that this keeping the simple message of of fear out there did something effective, much more effective than kind of a long, complicated um, campaign of education or enlightenment. You know, it can be distilled to, you know, heat over light. And he, he was a heat over light kind of guy. And in Fox, he found the perfect place to kind of explore all of his talents. He never said he was a journalist. He always said he was an entertainer. He loved showbiz. And with Rupert Murdoch's backing, Roger was given free reign to finesse this kind of gladiatorial political entertainment that he had played with earlier on. I mean, now he just had much, much, much more money. In addition to the Mike Douglas show that he was a producer on before he went to the Nixon campaign and then became an ad man, there was also this other entertainment uh, part of him that is, is a, it's like sort of a lost part of the 1990s, the, the um, America's Talking Network, which was eventually purchased by Microsoft and NBC to create MSNBC, which led to him going to Murdoch and proposing Fox. And America's Talking was this, I mean, there's this great scene that you have uh, of him interviewing Cindy Lauper mm. <laughs> and then getting up and dancing. I watched this. Uh, late at night, uh, and and I thought, I think I'm hallucinating when I saw that. It was incredible. There's so much more. Unfortunately, we weren't able to include Roger Ailes dressed up as Fidel Castro with a live chicken under his arm. You know, he had this kind of um, impresario quality. He produced a show uh, for a psychiatrist called Stanley Siegel, where he had Stanley on the couch, you know, asking America kind of, you know, what their what their problems were, sorting it out. He was really into kind of entertainment and fun and an all-American sense of kind of um, of adventure. And uh, he was he was game for everything in that particular part of his life. Right. And he loved doing it at America's Talking. However, when America's Talking was taken away from him. As he saw it, he wasn't taken away from him, but decisions were made about running it that marginalized him. He was not in the room for. He became, you know, utterly incandescent. And he said, you know, I'm going to F them like they've never been F'd before, basically. And, um, you know, thus Fox News was born. But people do say Roger was by far at his happiest at America's Talking. He was doing this kind of very genial programming. He met his third wife, Beth, and that was kind of his his sweet spot. One of the things that I was, you know, kind of, again, reminded of, in addition to the political advertising that he did for former President uh, George H.W. Bush, which helped, you know, in certainly in the 1988 election that, that elected Bush, uh, with the Willie Horton ads, were, were his involvement with other uh, politicians who are now are still a part of the, you know, determining public policy in a large way, such as Mitch McConnell. You have these older ads that the Ailes team put together for McConnell during his first race in the 80s. And it's, it's just such a different uh, view of, of McConnell because it's somebody who's not all that sure of himself. 
uh, but is being stage directed. I mean, they have this thing where he's he's fishing and they plant a you know they 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 stock a, a pond and and plant a fish on a on a hook, and he doesn't really know what to do <laughs> with it. It really does make the case. I think your your thesis a lot of what we see in public policy and in, in in not not just in a cultural aspect, but in the literally the people who are office holders are here because of Roger Ailes in large part. That's true. I mean, he's, you know, he did so many races, so many campaigns. His Rolodex was, you know, incomparable, put it that way. You know, you also see Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he was well-schooled in the world of Republican campaigning across America and across all the swing states, notably, but also in this kind of particular demimonde of New York life that comes from Roy Cohen. You know, so it's Roy Cohen, it's Trump. Uh, Roger was great friends with Barbara Walters, Mm -hmm. whose husband was very mobbed up. You know, please don't sue me, but that's, you know, that's what it was. And kind of, he had this particular pedigree you know, of having been responsible for the election of American sort of senators, congressmen, mayors, but also having connections to kind of a Manafort Stone, Roy Cohen type world. And there is this very direct connection between the current president, Donald Trump, and Mm. and Roger Ailes that you also make, you know, the the bookends of, of your film. You start with the Cleveland uh, nominating convention in 2016, uh, where we all found out that Ailes was leaving mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Fox News, uh, um, and, and what should have been his sort of crowning achievement. And then it, it, you, you end it also. You know, there, there's this moment that's not quite at the very end, but you're, you're speaking with Glenn Beck, uh, the former Fox News personality, and Beck is informing Ailes that he's leaving the network. And he, and he asks Beck, is recounting the story where he's asking Ailes why he sticks around. He's obviously got more money than he would know what to do with. He'd bought a newspaper and an estate in Cold Spring, New York at that point. I said to Roger, so what are you, what's next for you? I said, why are you still here? And he said, still have a, still have a president to pick. I still have a president to pick. Wow. I still have and, a president yeah, to pick. I still have a president to pick. And even Beck is blown away by this, you know, the sort of grandeur of the statement. And, you know, in large part, then you sort of reconstruct these moments of Trump just flooding the zone in Fox, whether it's on Fox and Friends or whether it's on other shows where he calls in and he's given free reign and made this familiar presence to this very dedicated viewership and very dedicated group of voters who were much more comfortable with the idea of Trump uh, in their living room all the time than, say, the people who didn't watch Fox or were covering and thinking that Jeb Bush was going to be the nominee in 2016. Absolutely. You know, and and Roger noticed that every time Trump was on television, on Fox, the ratings would spike. You know, Roger was obsessed with ratings, you know, and they're done in 15 minute increments. And he'd examine them and say, like, who's coming on and how does that how does that um, reflect in the ratings? And he gave Trump a platform for his I mean, he gave him a platform for him to opine about immigration, about economics, about tax cuts, about education, about all sorts of things that 
downtown, well, sorry, that a New York real estate, you know, millionaire wouldn't normally have the legitimacy to talk about. He gave him this political platform when nobody else would. In the so, morning, in yeah. the evening? Yeah. <laughs> like, he had his hey, we re- got fun. Yeah, yeah because, because of the ratings, because he knew that mm-hmm. every time he did, you know, there were great ratings. And that's the thing, I, you know, that's the thing you, you hope changes before the next election, that people become more media savvy, that it's, you know, Fox is not there to save, save America and, you know, deliver us from the, you know, evil of the kind of elitism of the rest of the mainstream media. Um, but it's really there as a, as a profit-making enterprise and some sort of acknowledgement of that on behalf of the viewing public, I think, would be pretty handy. One thing that was striking, too, is that you you also note that uh, there was uh, a lot of talk of like some of the major uh, contributors and correspondents for Fox uh, being able to, to walk, uh, the key man um, sort of part of their contracts, that if, if Ailes was ousted, they could all leave at the same time. And there was this, you know, th- this sort of question of whether the, the Hannity's of the world would leave. And, and obviously some of them, like O'Reilly, uh, were, were felled by, by their own uh, mishaps, particularly the sexual harassment scandals that have surrounded the network. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that is, uh, I think, just incredibly striking is that even without Ailes, even without O'Reilly, uh, even without Megyn Kelly, even without Gretchen Carlson, even without all these people who defined the network for the for the, this large period of time, they've they're just they're doing just fine. I mean, they, they've rebranded. They've brought uh, Tucker Carlson in. They've brought. Uh, I mean, they they seem to have adapted quite quickly to the post Ailes world uh, and he that he created. It's notable that his lieutenants are still very much in place. Suzanne Scott, who runs the place now, was, you know, an Ailes kind of disciple. Um, Diane Brandy, who's the head of legal counsel, is still there. She kind of went on uh, voluntary leave of absence, I believe the term is, for a little while, and then just quietly snuck back in. Irene Briganti, who's the head of Fox PR, uh, who's a formidable force, is still there. Um, You know, so he has the people who sort of learnt from him there, Mm -hmm. very much keeping the architecture in place. What one thing that I I also wanted to note too is I mean I can't imagine the amount of research that went into getting some of these clips I mean just just how much you had to watch but you've got two particularly um, you know amazing clips one of Ailes on the Charlie Rose show talking about how journalism is the last uh, profession where you can be a womanizer and a drunk and and you know and have all these like you know sort of reprehensible traits that that have led you know to to the Me Too movement and. Rose is just there chuckling away. Still get away uh, with it, Charlie. You because, can still get away with it, Charlie. And then towards the end, after that clip plays, uh, you, you have, uh, you have, I believe it's O'Reilly talking to Matt Lauer yes. uh, about some of the the, um, the allegations and the settlements and so forth before Lauer was ousted and before, you know, there's almost this parallelism between Ailes's security surrounding his desk at News Corp and also... Um, Matt Lauer, that he had this door that you couldn't open if you were inside. I mean, it's just really creepy. We were joking a little bit before the we started recording about this is this might be the first horror movie of the of the season uh, of the of the of the holiday season. But there are elements of horror to it. I wanted to try to anchor. I think that he saw that as what do I get out of that? And so when I went to him to ask him for more opportunity, he said. 
Well, I would have to work with you more closely if that were to happen. I would have to train you, give you sort of tutorials, and you know, people might be jealous. And so we would have to, we'd be best if we did it away from here, um, perhaps at a hotel sometime. Do you know what I'm saying? People were trapped in these situations, and you don't it was have really... one of those buttons. <laughs> I don't. I, do, I don't. I don't even have a desk. We have an open workspace. <laughs> it's pretty. It's pretty dark. It's pretty bad. You know, it really is. It's. It's. It's pretty nuts, to be honest. You think of the chairman of this huge, you know, corporation, who's responsible for the messaging to such a large portion of of the country, and and his mental health, basically, that you have to have guns in your drawer at the office, bulletproof uh, glass, steel reinforced doors, cameras everywhere. I mean, you know, he was it, fragile is the word that springs to mind. Your film uh, is is not a psychological profile so much as it's a it's a biography of a man of a of a political approach and movement and, a, and of a company, Fox News. But there are moments where we see a little bit into his, his psyche and you have this narration. Were there ever moments that you, you thought, oh, we're going to get close to him saying like, wow, I really shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have, maybe I really have hurt somebody. Were there any of those moments of contrition that you were expecting and then just, you know? No, never... I mean, that's the short answer is no, he wasn't sorry for anything. That's not to say that he didn't have psychological insight. Um, he did, and he was a very astute observer of human behavior and a very astute packager of his own message. Mm -hmm. uh, and he dealt in psychological tropes very deftly. Um, and we do have moments in the film when he says things like, you know, if you believe you're a victim you're going to be a victim. And if you believe you're a winner, you're going to be a winner. And he he was ruthless. I mean, we do try to get at his psychology in his own words by mm -hmm. using the things that he said. But if you're asking whether he ever apologized, no, he didn't. Well, the film comes out in theaters on Friday, December 7th, and Go it will also be it. on streaming services like iTunes and Amazon uh, and so forth. And I, uh, I, I just, you know, to put in a, uh, a, a just a bit of an observation uh, for me, I mean, I, I mean, I do this for a living. I, I work with, you know, people from the Fox News network and I've been on Fox News myself and worked with their journalists. And I learned quite a bit. And so, you do see him dance. So, he, you do see. It's not without you chuckles. You do see him dance with Cindy Lauper. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, if if nothing else, uh, Alexis Bloom, thank you so much for talking with Political Theater about your new movie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. And thank you for listening. <laughs>